Now this morning, what we're going to do to wrap up our series called Vintage Jesus is ask the question, what is our vintage response to the vintage Jesus? What is the response that you and I are to have to Him because of who He is and because of what He's done? Now a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that He demands everything. I was reminded of one of my favorite verses in all of uh, Christian music. It comes from a hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, a great hymn. But at the end of that hymn, in the last verse, it says, Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And so today we're going to ask the question, what is our response to Him? Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And on your handout it says verse 19. We're actually going to start at the end of verse 18. Now, if you've got a New International Version, which is what I preach out of, it starts the paragraph there. But the end of verse 18, Paul, who is in jail writing this, in chains, says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am going on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Four things that I want us to look at this morning that our response ought to be as a result of understanding who this vintage Jesus is. And the first one is that we should live for Jesus. We should live for Jesus. Now what I'm thinking of here is a single-minded living. An undistracted living. Now the truth is we live in the age of distraction. This week, my family and I, last weekend, we were in South Carolina for uh, Susan's nephew's wedding. Had a great time there. Drove back to Atlanta. And one of the things that I have a problem with sometimes is while I'm driving, being a little distracted. Wives, any of your husbands have that same problem? Sometimes the radio needs to be changed. Sometimes I need to check my phone. Sometimes the boys are saying something and distractions can be a problem, right? Most of the statistics tell us that most accidents that occur today occur because of some sort of distraction. And the truth is that in the Christian life, it is very easy to get distracted. I think about Paul in another place. Paul is the the, the king of this this single-mindedness, this one-track mind, this one task, no multitasking. What Paul says in another place is that there is one thing that he goes after. Pressing on for the one thing, to know Christ. 
The truth is that what we have to do in our lives is to continually live for Him with this undistracted mind. Paul gives us that in verse 21. And we're going to talk about the verses before that, but he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now I just want to tell you right from the beginning, that verse is counter to almost everything we in our natural bodies would be about. For me to live is Christ, and if I don't get to live anymore, that's the best news of all. Because if I'm not living, that means I'm dead. Hallelujah. Amen. That's what he says all my life. Everything that I'm about is about living for Christ. If you were to take everything around me and pull the distractions away, living for Christ is the reason I'm here. Now, this is how he says to do it. First of all, he says that we are to live through Christ through the power provided. Look what it says in verse 19. For that I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Christ. He says, first of all, I don't live this life for Christ on my own. That I have to have the prayers of the saints and the help of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't help but think while Sidney was singing that song. And as this choir was beautifully talking about what happens when God's presence fills this place, that it says in there, there's a line that there are some here today that need healing. There are some here today that need hope. There are other needs that are in this place. And the truth is that you can't handle it on your own. There is absolutely no way that you can handle your life on your own. I want to tell you that one of the most liberating days of my life was when I realized that I didn't have to do it by myself. And some of you here today need healing. Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's spiritual healing. Some of you need hope. You don't know where tomorrow is going to come from, what's going to happen. But you can't get that on your own. And these two things provide us power to live. First of all, you've got to have the prayer of the saints. You know what amazes me about Paul? Is outside of Jesus, Paul is probably the person written about the most in Scripture. And when you think about Paul, when you think about his life, he was an amazing man of God. But every time he writes a church, he asks for them to pray for him. Because he knew he needed it. Some of you in this room this morning have not plugged into a small group. You haven't plugged into a Sunday school class. You haven't plugged into a place where you're allowing people to understand your hurts and your needs and your wants and all that's happening in your life. Let me just be real honest with you. Some of you here are on a, Monday, on a Sunday school roll. Some of you have been attending a Sunday school class. Some of you have friends that are around you, but you're still not letting them know the needs of your life, the things that are hurting you inside, what's going on with who you are. And as a result, you are missing out on one of the most powerful parts of living the Christian life, which is letting other people pray for you. There are a lot of reasons that you need to be involved in Sunday school and small group ministry. But one of the primary ones is you need each other. Let me tell you, I need you. I need you praying for me. Some of you on a regular basis will tell me, Pastor, I pray for you every day. Pastor, I'm praying for you all the time. And I want to tell you that, that, that 
I cannot convey just in words how impactful, how meaningful that is to me that you're praying for me. Because here's what I know. Is that without the prayers of you as the saints, without prayers of my friends and people that I know, then I would be out there on my own, ripe for attack from the enemy. Discouraged, defeated, not able to live this life. But through the power provided through prayer, you lift me up. Some of you in this room, the only thing you need to hear today, the only thing that matters to you today that you need to understand is that you need to find some people to pray for you. And I'm not talking about the, oh, I'll pray for you. You know that. The, you go up to somebody and go, boy, I'm having a tough day. I'll tell you what, I'll pray for you. Not that that's bad, but you need somebody that will walk beside you, pray for you, ask you if God's answering, ask you what those needs are. You need somebody to walk with you through this life. Not only do we have prayer, power through prayer, but we also have power through the Holy Spirit. The help that is given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He talks about that the only way that he can know to rejoice, the only way he knows it's going to turn out alright, is because of the prayers of the saints and because of the Spirit of Christ. Now, Scripture teaches us that when we accept Jesus as our Savior, then we are given the Holy Spirit that lives with inside of us. But the truth is, and Scripture teaches, that there are times when we live more by the Spirit or more by the flesh, and we have to give some some ownership, or we have to allow our lives to be guided by the Spirit. And there are a whole lot of Christians today that are trying to live this life without any power. And that power only comes through the Spirit. The first way that we live for Christ is through the power provided. The second thing we need to understand is we need to live for Christ no matter the circumstances. Paul wasn't having a particularly good day by human standards. He's in jail, chained to a jailer because of something he didn't do. Or because of his faith in Christ. Not only that, there are all these guys out there preaching messages that he knows aren't true, but he can't do anything about it. I wonder, have you had a bad day lately? Anybody here had a bad day lately? Had something just go wrong? Last weekend, we were kind of joking with my brother-in-law because he had he's, he's the brother-in-law with triplets. And the triplets were in the wedding. And we were getting ready to go to rehearsal, which we knew might be a little bit of a circus, with the triplets at the wedding, and on the way to the wedding, he got a flat tire. Luckily, he was only dressed up really nice in 98-degree weather. That was the good news. Well, when he got the tire changed and he got there and we got to the rehearsal, we started to go to the place where the rehearsal dinner was, and on the way, he had not gotten the news that it was a place that only allowed you in if you had coat and tie on. He didn't have coat and tie on. We said it's just not his day. I thought that was a bad day till I read about something else that happened recently. The story of a bricklayer that had an accident on a construction site and with the insurance company they'd written him twice wanting a detailed explanation of what happened. So this is what he wrote. I'm a bricklayer by trade and on the date of the accident I was working alone on a roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had a sizable pile of bricks left over, and rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel using a pulley that was attached to the edge of the roof. 
After securing the rope at ground level, I went back up to the roof, swung the barrel out of the loaded bricks and put the bricks in the barrel. I then went to the ground, untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of bricks. You will notice in block number two of this report, I weigh 150 pounds. The bricks, I soon discovered, weigh slightly more than 500 pounds. As a result, my weight was not enough to keep me down. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground by the weight of the bricks, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded up the side of the building at a rather rapid rate of speed. Around the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. That explains my fractured skull and broken collarbone. The collision with the barrel slowed me down only slightly. I continued up the building at an alarming rate until unable to stop until my right hand was jammed into the pulley at the top of the building. Fortunately, I was able to hold on to the rope in spite of the pain. It was at this time that the barrel of bricks slammed against the ground, tearing the bottom out of the barrel. Without the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight and below two. As you might imagine, I began a rather rapid descent down the side of the building. Around the third floor, I met the barrel on its way up. That would account for my broken ankle and the lacerations on the left side of my body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me down just enough to minimize my injury, so when I landed on the pile of bricks on the ground, I'm sorry to report that as I lay on my back looking at the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. The empty barrel weighed more than the rope, so it came zooming back down. That explains my broken right arm. I hope you find this information useful as you process my claim. Now that is a bad day. Amen? When Paul wrote Philippians, he was given in life what seemed to be nothing but lemons. He was in jail, living under the threat of death, being separated from the people he cared about. He knew his enemies were celebrating his incarceration, but in spite of that, Philippians is a book whose theme is joy. What it tells us is that no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, you need to live for the Lord. Look what he says. In spite of all of that, I will continue to rejoice. Because I am confident, because of what happened with the prayers that are coming in and the Spirit of Christ, that it will turn out for my deliverance. I know, I eagerly expect and hope. That's basically saying, I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that whatever happens to me, I will not be ashamed. Because Christ will give me the courage to live. Which leads us to the last thing. We live through the power provided, no matter the circumstances, and no matter the outcome. This is what I love about this passage. Is that Paul says that no matter what happens in my life, no matter what the outcome is in my life, no matter what's going on in my life, I know that I'm going to be okay. And because of that, I'm going to live for Christ. I've heard a a pastor that once said that a valuable test is to live your life and to ask the question for you, what is to live and what is to die? Paul says for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. But what for you is it? Is it to live is money and to die is to lose it all in the end? 
For you is to live to be fame and to die is to be forgotten. For you is to live power and to die is to lose control. You see, how we live determines what matters when we die. And what I know from Scripture is that Paul lived a life that he was confident that no matter what happened with him, that when he died, it would be gain. Now think about that. A few weeks ago I was listening to my brother-in-law on the internet preach. My brother-in-law is a pastor down in Jackson, Mississippi area, Brandon, Mississippi. And he was talking about that that week he had been in Jackson and his Most of you know Susan's mom has been very sick for almost a couple of years now. And doctors in January gave her really just a couple of months to live. Didn't know if she'd make it to her birthday in March. And she made it to her birthday in March. And and then her next goal was to make it to Kevin's wedding. And she was able to go to the wedding last weekend and felt good while she was there, which we were thankful to God for. And David and our family, as he was saying in his sermon, are praying that we have years left with Grand Marilyn, as my kids know her. Years. But at the same time, David was there to talk about what happens if a funeral is necessary. And then David made a statement that I remember, that that God just kind of shook me with and asked me if I were the same way. He said, in the midst of planning her funeral, I asked her if I could switch places. He said, and I'm not trying to be morbid, but here's my thing. I look forward to the day that I get to see my Jesus. And when you are a follower of Jesus and you're living completely for Him, then it doesn't matter what's going to happen to you in the end. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I've told you about it a couple of times, but I just love what they do when they're getting ready to be thrown into the fiery furnace and they're standing on the side and He says, I'm giving you one last chance. Bow now and you won't have to go into the furnace. And they say, we serve a God that even if you throw us into the furnace, He will yet deliver us. But if He doesn't, we will never bow down. Now that is faith. That's living for the Lord. And what Paul says right here is, I know that because of who I serve, and because of the prayers of the saints, and because of what God has done in my life, that I will not be ashamed that it's going to turn out for good. But if in the end, what I am in right now turns into my death, for me to die is gain, and I will never bow down to anything else. Let me just ask you a real straightforward question. Are you living for the Lord? Everything about who you are, every decision that you make, every, every purchase that you make, every financial move that you make, every business decision you make, every family decision you make, are you living for the Lord in making those decisions? Is your life passionately devoted to Him? Now that's a phrase that I use a lot. That's the the, the mission of our church, to lead people to become passionately devoted. But I can't think of a more passionately devoted person than Paul in this passage. Because it's all about Jesus. The first thing that Paul teaches us here is that we ought to live for Jesus. Here's the second thing, that we should labor for Jesus. Look at verse 22. 
If I am going on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Now what we need to understand here real quickly is what Paul is saying is that he is going to do whatever God calls him to do. And because of that, if he is to stay living, that he's going to work at what God calls him to work at with all that he has. Now remember, where is Paul? He's in jail, right? He's not living in a lap of luxury. He's not in a great hotel. He's not in a nice house. He doesn't have a good job. He is in the midst of jail. And what he's basically saying here is, I'm going to live my life in such a way, no matter what circumstance I find myself in, that it will bring glory to God and help to build you up. One of the most popular shows on television right now is a show called The Office. And one of the reasons that critics and columnists think that The Office is such a a show that hits a nerve is because most people can sympathize with a group of people that seem to be going through meaningless tasks on a daily basis. Now, I know that none of you here ever think of your work in that way. But some people do. And what's interesting is they have an incompetent boss... They have people that are all kinds of different persuasions and different ideas and different personalities, and they all function together, but at the end of the day, the only thing they can think of is, how soon can I get out of here? And what we understand is that no matter what office situation we find ourselves in, that we're to live at it, to labor at it for the Lord. One person talking about work recently in a newspaper said that work is brutal. And the truth is that many times work transforms most people into something bad, bitter, and broken. Well, I can't imagine having to get up to go to that every day. But the truth is, some of you have been there before. Perhaps you've had a bad boss in your life or two. I remember when I was growing up, I I think I've mentioned that one summer I worked in the dye house at Dyersburg Fabrics. Dyersburg Fabrics is a large corporation, textile mill in Dyersburg, and in the dye house, it was always 20 to 30 degrees warmer in the dye house than it was outside. When you're working in West Tennessee, as in Middle Tennessee, in the middle of July in the dye house, outside it's 98 to 100 degrees. And I had a boss that wasn't a bad guy, but about two weeks into the task, he realized I could do his work for him. He had some things he had to do on the computer and all of that. And he had kind of been trained recently in the computer. I'm one of these guys that grew up in the computer generation. And before long, I was doing my work and his work, and he sat there. And I remember talking to my mom about that. And she says, you've got to work at it as if you're working for the Lord. You know that verse of Scripture, don't you? Colossians 3, 23 through 25. This is how the message paraphrases. It says, don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. Here's the thing, as Christians, we ought to labor for Jesus. We ought to labor for the Lord. We ought to do everything that we do to the best of our ability as if we're working for Him. Here's the thing that I realized that summer. 
is that while I might not have the most perfect boss here on earth, that when I worked for the Lord, I worked for the perfect boss. Always fair, always merciful, always loving. We need to labor for the Lord. Reggie McNeil tells a story of being on a bench at the beach and saw this woman wiping the sidewalk. And you know, as you can imagine, a sidewalk near a beach got sand all over it and she was taking time to make sure she got everything off. But he just said to her, you know, lady, you do a great job. She stopped for a minute and looked at him and she said, well, why wouldn't I? I just believe people want a clean sidewalk. Reggie McNeil said that as she walked away, she couldn't help but think of that passage of Scripture that says, whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability, as if working for the Lord. Two more things real quickly. First, the third one is we need to long for Jesus. Look what Paul says in verse 22. He gives us this choice, and it's a win-win situation, but most people wouldn't think of that. But he says, my goal, my desire is to depart. Now that word is a word from the original language that means to pick up camp and to move to somewhere else. To take up all your belongings and to move into a new place. It's the idea in another place of a ship setting sail for a new destination. And what he says is, my desire is to be done with this world. And the truth is, for followers of Jesus, there come those moments in our lives when we are just ready to go. Maybe not for you, but for a lot of us, there are moments when we're just ready to go. You know, people think it's weird or different sometimes when you walk into a hospital room of someone that has struggled with illness for years and years and years. And as a pastor even in my limited experience of seven years or so, you, you know when you walk into a hospital room and the end is near, for the most part. Now, God sometimes miraculously heals and we pray for that, but there are those moments when you walk in and you talk to someone and you'll hear this statement, I am ready to go. And I'll be honest, there are moments when I have walked through those with those people and I know exactly what they're saying and I am with them and when they say I'm ready to go, then my prayer is, Lord, when you're ready for them, in your timing, let it happen. But the truth is, as Christians, all of us ought to live our lives ready to go. We ought to live our lives on a daily basis with all of our affairs in order. So that if the Lord were to call us home tomorrow, we're not worried about what we're leaving behind. That we're ready to go. And part of that comes from just a longing to be with Jesus. I love how the Bible ends. Turn over to Revelation. We're not going to go through the whole book of Revelation. Go to the very end of Revelation. That is where the Bible ends, the last I checked. This is the Apostle John writing, and he's written this book that I assume he understood what he was writing, but many of us have no idea what the book really means all the way through. We understand parts, but all of it is difficult to understand. And at the end of this book, he writes this beautiful picture of what heaven's going to be like, what the new heaven, the new earth is going to be like, what's going to happen in the end. He gives us this big description. And in the end, he says... 
verse 20, that Jesus says to him, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And then I love John's response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. One of the things that the New Testament Christians did is they lived every day as if Jesus were coming that day. In a couple of months, we're going to, if the Lord tarries, the Lord doesn't come back, we're going to spend time talking about how would you live if you had 30 days left to live. It's going to be a one-month-to-live challenge. We're going to do it church-wide. You'll be seeing some information about that real soon. But the question is, how would you live if you had one month left to live? Well, here's the truth. The New Testament church lived as if they had that day left to live. They longed for Jesus. They wanted Jesus to come. John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you ready to go? If the Lord was to call you today, would you be ready for Him? Would you be ready to go? Would you be ready to take off and to live with Him? Here's the last thing. We should last for Jesus. Paul says, that's my desire to be with Jesus, but I'm going to stay here now. I'm going to stay here now and I'm going to live my life to the last day committed to Him. One of the tragedies of the society in which we live is that our world tears down anybody that rises to the top. One of the things that's amazing about this presidential election that's coming up is that the two guys that are running for this for the presidency, the two main party candidates, have been built up and torn down more than I can ever remember two people being built up and torn down in the last couple of years. One of the interesting things is they've been running so long that the cycle it keeps repeating itself over and over again because that's the way our society is. We build somebody up and then before long we have to tear down everything that they are. And the truth is that Satan would love nothing more than to tear down your witness, your work, your life as you live for Jesus. But Paul says that's not going to happen to him. He is going to remain faithful. This week I read the story that came out of the mid to late 80s of a Christian over in Iran that was arrested because he was a Christian. They accused him of being a Christian and arrested him for that. And he went on trial and he had to give a written defense. And his written defense was unbelievable because it was the last thing that he would write, the last thing that he would publish. It was the last thing that would be known from him. And in that place where he had the chance to, to disregard his faith, where he had the chance to say, that's not who I am, where he had a chance to save his own skin, he simply writes that he had become a follower of Jesus. And that as a follower of Jesus, he had no other choice but to proclaim Him as Savior. And then he almost quotes Paul in saying, that today I stand here and realize that the only reason for me to live is Him. And if that requires me dying, then I'm willing to do so. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. I thought about the story of Cassie Bernal. You... Remember that story, don't you? Columbine High School. 
Sometimes as those stories get farther and farther away, they get tremendous, or they get in our memory less and less. But a teenage girl in her own high school walking the halls when someone pressed a gun to her head and asked her if she believed in God. And her simple response was yes. The last words that she would say. And the question is not whether you and I, because the true chances are that we're not going to face a life-threatening moment where we have to choose to obey and to proclaim Jesus or we're going to have to try to get away from it. The question is, in your everyday living, in your day-to-day choices and ideas and life, will you last for Jesus? Will you be faithful to Him? Philippians chapter 1 sums up Paul's ministry in these words. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 